Bethel Baptist University. It's my delight to bring you greetings from Bison Hill. Uh, it's good to be in Texas again. My wife is a, uh, an Aggie, and uh, there you go. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I served uh, churches in Texas, uh, and my parents live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, as does one of my brothers. My other brother lives in Beaumont, Texas. So it's good to be amongst Texans, uh, and uh, you'll find a lot of them at OBU. So that's a good thing. It is great to be with you, and uh, God is doing incredible things at OBU. Uh, and it's, it's great to share with you uh, from God's Word today. So to get us going, uh, I'd like for you to do an exercise. I'm going to actually give you permission to talk while the preacher's uh, preaching, okay? So, uh, you know, you can stop scrolling on Facebook right now. And actually, uh, uh, what I'd like for you to do is I'd like you to turn to your neighbor, and I want you to think about the biggest change you've ever faced in your life. And tell your neighbor about it. Ready? I'll give you about 30 seconds to do this. Talk about the biggest change or transition you've ever faced in your life. Ready? Go. That's good. I like this. A lot of energy. That's good. Few more seconds. All right. Some of you uh, were talking about when your child was born, and you realize I'm a very selfish person, and I have got to be more selfless to take care of this child. Yes, we have four children. My wife Jill and I. Two of our kids are here with us. Uh, my oldest is actually coming to OBU in the fall. He is on a senior kind of. Adventure. He and his buddy went, uh, drove across uh, country. We used to live in North Carolina, so he's visiting friends in North Carolina. My daughter is with her cousin in, in Dallas-Fort uh, Worth area. That's Bella. She's a junior in high school. And then my uh, two other kids, Simon and Sophia, are with us here today. And I'm telling you, uh, when we had kids, my wife and I were looking at each other, just trying to figure out, okay... Who's really going to take care of these kids? I want you to do it. She was looking at me saying, I want you to do it. We realize that children, uh, part of the reason that God gives us children is to make us more selfless, to make us kinder. And uh, that certainly has been true. Some of you uh, are talking about changes that you've experienced, and it's been a little bit, uh, uh, you know, not as lighthearted as, as the transition to, to uh uh, having children. Some of you are talking about maybe changes in your work, changes in your life. Uh, maybe you've faced some real hardship this year, especially in the COVID crazy uh, world that we've faced over the past 15 months. You've faced a transition in life, whether we're talking about a bereavement or a, a job change or life change. I remember uh, John and Jancy, uh, you know, John, we got to know John when we lived in the UK. And I realized when we moved to the UK, uh, that was a big transition. I'll tell you why. They don't speak English over there. No offense, John. Uh, but they say funny things like, for potato chips, they call them crisps. Why? I have no idea. They're potato chips, right? Uh, some of the changes are a little bit uh, more significant. Uh, but transitions, uh, oftentimes for us, are very difficult. We think about changes in life and 
Some of them are lighthearted. There's a lot of energy in the room. Some of them are a little bit more serious. But here's something that you and I need to understand. No matter how much you want to put time in a bottle, no matter how much you want things to stay exactly the same, the creaking of our joints, the graying of our hair, the age-to-age, stage-to-stage changes testify to the fact that change is part of life. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? So what I want us to do today is ask this basic question, how can you and I embrace change in God's world? Not just uh, kind of muddle through change, but actually embrace change. So to do that, what I want to do is, uh, you know, Brian gave me uh, 50 minutes. He said, that's, that's fine, right? Is that okay? 50 minutes? No, I'm not going to do 50 minutes. Some of you are like, uh, okay, I'm packing up now. So in the next few short minutes, what I want us to do is break open God's Word. And this is 1 Samuel chapter 16. So if you have your Bible, turn there. But in 1 Samuel chapter 16, I want to open up God's Word. I want to look at what the Scriptures say. And then I just want to give some reflections on how you and I can embrace change in God's world. So if you have your Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. It's an Old Testament book, and I, you'll have to forgive me. I'm an Old Testament professor by training, and so I love the book of First and Second Samuel. First and Second Samuel is actually one book in the ancient uh, Hebrew scrolls. Uh, it, it's all one story, and uh, in 1 Samuel 16 and 17, we're coming to a crucial section in the book of First and Second Samuel. So if you have your Bible, look at it, and uh, I'm going to make some comments as we go along. Here's what the text says. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I've provided for myself a king amongst his sons. Let me just press pause here. Who is Samuel, who is Saul, and who is Jesse? And why is there a change in kingship? Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, what you need to understand is the previous chapter tells us that Samuel is the prophet of God. Early on in the book of Samuel, Samuel was this little dude who ministered at the temple under the, the leadership of this guy, Eli. Eli was the high priest. And so Samuel, uh, if you go back to even the beginning of the first uh, chapter of Samuel, uh, uh, Samuel was this answer to prayer, okay? And I mean an answer to prayer. His mom was trying to have children for a very long time. And she couldn't have children, so she would go to the temple at that time, uh, and she or the tower. And she would go and pour out her heart because everyone around her, it seemed like, was having children. And here she was, and in those days, having children was even more significant than it is today. So if you were barren, as the language of the text says, then there was a big question. The husband would look at the wife and say, what's wrong with you? I'm not saying this is a good thing. This is actually a bad thing, a very destructive thing. But here Hannah is, and she is crying out to God, 
Eli doesn't really understand what's going on, so she, he thinks she's drunk. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, right? Here she is, she's sobbing and weeping. Eli, the priest, looks at her and says, what are you doing coming drunk to the temple? I mean, the tabernacle, this is a bad deal. She goes, you idiot, I am not drunk. I'm crying out to the Lord. I'm, I'm trying to get honest with God and say, I'm messed up. I'm, something's wrong. I, I need a child. And Samuel is the answer to her prayer. In fact, what God does is he says, I hear you. And you might not understand this, but in the Hebrew, Samuel is from two Hebrew words. El, God, and then Shema is here. God hears. So Hannah named her son Samuel, God hears me. And that's true for her life, but it, you know that's also true in our lives. God hears us when we pray. And so Samuel is the prophet who ministered at the temple and answered prayer. And God raised him up to minister with this guy Eli. But then God raised him up to be a prophet. And the prophet Samuel anointed the first king of Israel. And his name was Saul. Now Saul was the first king of Israel. He looked tall, dark, and handsome. He looked the part of a king. But we find out in the story... The Bible is full of people with messed up character, and uh, Saul was one of those guys, okay? Saul didn't have it all together. He looked the part, but actually when it got down to it, Saul wanted to build his own kingdom rather than God's kingdom. And it got to the point where God told Saul to do a very hard thing, go in and destroy a nation, namely the Amalekites. And he says, wipe everything out. Now, that's a hard word for us to hear, but that was the word that was given. So Saul says, okay, I'll do it. But then he goes in, and instead of fulfilling what God told him to do, you remember what I said, Saul liked to build his kingdom rather than God's kingdom. And the way you do that is you actually disobey God's commands. You say, okay, I'll take and choose what I want to listen to and what I want to obey. And that's what happened with Saul. So instead of wiping everything out, he actually preserved the king of the Amalekites and kept him. And then he kept all the animals, the finest animals. So God says to Samuel, now an adult, the prophet of God, and says, hey, you need to go check on Saul. He's not obeying. And so Samuel gets up and walks down to where Saul is, and uh, all he hears is a bunch of animals. Ah, it's like a a farmyard, right? And what's the deal? Well, he hasn't destroyed all the animals and all the people like God had said. And so Saul looks at uh, uh, Samuel and he says, Aha, here he is, the prophet. Oh, my friend, what's going on? This is great. And so, uh, Samuel looks at Saul and says, Hey, what's this bleeding of sheep in my ears? Uh, well... Uh, Saul says, I did what the Lord said. I wiped everything out. Okay, well, why is there the sound of animals? Well, uh, I was actually going to preserve those for a big sacrifice. No. And then he says, now, wait a second, uh, Saul, there's a king over there. Weren't you supposed to wipe him out? Well, uh, I preserved the king. And then Saul does this funny thing. Uh, I'm sure you don't do this. He blames somebody. 
He said, well, I was a little bit nervous about the, the leadership of the, the people. And so I preserved the king and the animals because we were going to have a big party to celebrate and show how awesome we were. And, and Samuel says, no. God desires obedience rather than sacrifice. And he really likes listening to him and doing what he says rather than the fat of rams is kind of what he, he says. He's talking about sacrifice. An outward show without inward devotion is no devotion at all. So that's a good word for us, right? Why do we come to church? Well, we don't come just to kind of put a show on. Uh, that's boring and that's worthless. So why do we come to worship? Why do we come to church? To meet the God who made us and get honest with God and say, Lord, I need this. I'm, I'm in deep trouble. God, I need help. And what the Lord does is he meets us at our point of need. That's true in the Old Testament. That's true today. Now, what the reality was is the judgment against Saul was, hey, Saul, you've lost the kingdom. You tried to build your own kingdom and you'll lose your kingdom. And so what God says is, I'm going to raise up another king after my own heart who loves me and is devoted to me. Now, what this means is there's going to be a change in kingship. But when you think about it, Samuel, I mean, just put yourself in Samuel's position for a minute. Samuel raised up Saul. He was his conciliary, right? He was his advisor. And here Saul finds out uh, he is losing the kingdom, and Samuel has to tell him the hard news. The kingdom is no longer yours. God's doing something fresh. God's doing a new thing. And the reality is, when Samuel has to give that news, it's hard for him. Why? He knows Saul. He loves Saul. He made Saul king. And so in the first few verses of this chapter, we find Samuel grieving over the change. And so Samuel looks at God or listens to what God says, and God says, hey, how long are you to grieve? Let's go. I'm doing something fresh. I'm doing new. There's a change. And he goes, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, he's going to kill me. And the Lord said, okay, we'll take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll let you know what you are to do. And you are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to, the Beth to Bethlehem. And when the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, Do you come in peace? Now this seems weird, but what you need to understand is the rest of the story. After Samuel said to Saul, hey, uh, the kingdom's taken from you, here's the rest of the story. And if you're curious about this, look at chapter 15. The king of the Amalekites was there, and the Lord told Saul, wipe out everybody, and the king included. Saul didn't do that, so what Samuel did is he took a sword that was lying around, and in full brave heart mode, walked over to the king of the Amalekites and hacked him into pieces. Now that seems crazy. Anger issues, right? But the reality is, this was part of the command of God. So, 
the Bethlehemites hear of this story. I mean, listen, word of mouth got around, uh, don't mess with Samuel. So here comes Samuel bebopping up to Bethlehem. The elders of the city look at him. They've just heard what he did, and they look at him, and that's why the text says he's, they're trembling. And they say, do you come in peace? Have you come to hack us up? What's going on? And he says, no, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse, this guy Jesse, who's a leader in Bethlehem, and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, no, don't look at his appearance or his stature, his height, because I've rejected him. See, humans, they don't see what the Lord sees, for humans see what's visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Look at verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and rep, uh, presented him to Samuel. And the Lord said, ah, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. Then Jesse presented Shammah, but Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. And after Jesse presented seven, seven of his sons... Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. And Samuel asked him, are these the only kids you got? Is this it? Well, there's still the youngest, Jesse replied. But right now he's tending the sheep. I didn't even bother to bring him because he's no king. He's just the shepherd boy. There's no way he could be invited to the sacrifice and there's no way he could be king. Samuel said to Jesse, send for him. We won't sit down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. Now, this boy had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Then the Lord said, anoint him. He's the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah, which is another town. Now, this is a passage that you and I can get help from as we think about embracing change in God's kingdom. Here's some reflections. Number one, this passage reminds us that you and I need to embrace the fact of change. Let me say that again. You and I need to embrace the fact of change. Change is part of life. Now, how do we know this from this passage? Well, check it out. What you may not know is the book of Samuel is actually a book of transition and change. We have a transition from Eli, the first priest, and in chapters uh, 2 through 5, we begin to see, guess what? God is going to change the priesthood. So Eli and his sons are no longer the priest du jour. Samuel is. We have a transition in leadership from these charismatic leaders called judges to actually kings in the book of Samuel. And now we have a transition or a change from Saul to David. From time of the conquest to the time of Samuel, God raised up judges to lead his people. But now... God is doing a fresh thing. He's raising up kings. And the book of Samuel raises that up and shows us that. But then it goes even further. 
There's a kind of king that God embraces, and it's not a kind of king that will build his own kingdom at the expense of God's kingdom. Actually, what God wants is a king who reigns after God's own heart. And what that actually means is, hey, guess what? His heart is devoted to God. Is he going to get it perfect? No. Welcome to life. Church is not full of perfect people. But guess what? What distinguishes David from Saul? When David inevitably, like you and me, does something off or messes up, he's the first to say, I messed up. I got it wrong. We could say it in this way. Uh, David knew the value of repentance. Confessing, I got it wrong, and then turning back to God. That's what distinguishes David from Saul, really. So it's this transition to a king after God's own heart. Saul was a king who ruled like the nations, but David ruled after God's own heart. The point, however, is quite clear in the book of Samuel. Life is change. God's people had to learn to embrace change. Samuel, Saul, Saul, David. Here's the reality, and let me just break this open for us a little bit. Again, you'll have to forgive me, I'm an Old Testament professor. But when you think about the Old Testament, and you think about the creation of the world uh, recorded in Genesis 1, here's what you need to understand. Days 1, 2, and 3 in the the text, God created the the domains of light and darkness, right? He creates these domains of waters above and waters beneath. And then he creates the dry land. But on day 4, he makes something very interesting. He makes sun, moon, and stars... And the Bible says on the fourth day, the reason why he makes sun, moon, and stars is to note days and months and seasons. Now, why do I bring that up? I bring it up because time is part of the created order. And have you ever heard this phrase, time marches on? Time is a gift in God's creation. And that means... You and I are bound to time. And what that means for you and me, practically speaking, is you can't catch time in a bottle. Things don't stay the same. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's just a created order kind of thing. And so part of our navigation of what it means to be human beings is navigating change. Not as a problem but an opportunity in God's world. At first, when Samuel was confronted with this change from Saul to David, he just said, no! In fact, he responded like you and I often do, grief and fear. When we encounter Samuel at first, he's grieving over the change, Samuel, uh, Saul's going. And then when God says, all right, don't grieve anymore. I want you to go anoint the new thing, the new king. He says, how can I go? Saul, if he finds out, is going to kill me. Fear. Grief and fear. Do you know why we grieve change? Because change is hard. Do you know why we get fearful when life changes? Because change is hard. It's fresh. It's new. And so looking at Samuel's response... He does exactly what we do. But if you and I are going to navigate the waters of transition, we need to learn to embrace change. Change is part of life. We'd like to hold it. We'd like to 
preserve it. But the reality is, is you can't. The graying of our hairs testifies to this fact. Our children don't stay children. I'm just, my 16-year-old just got her license. And let me just tell you, life is changing. Scary. 16-year-old behind the wheel. You can't stop change. Relationships don't stay the same. Life is always changing. In their forward to their book, Changing Pastors, a resource for pastoral transitions, the authors, Sweetser and McKinney, say it this way. Life is change, change is growth, listen to this, and growth is painful. Isn't that true? Even Samuel had to learn to embrace change in leadership. And listen, so must you and so must this church. Why? Because change is inevitable. Change is not a bad thing, change is a good thing. In fact, we could say that change is a God thing. Is it painful? Yes. Will it require you to alter the course of how you operate your life? Yes. But is it an opportunity for growth? Yes. It's an opportunity for us to see what fresh work God is doing in our lives. It's an opportunity for us to see how God wants to use this body, the church, or your family. It's an opportunity for us to see who we can reach with the good news of Jesus Christ. Listen, my friends, don't miss out on what God is doing because we're stuck in neutral or we're moving backwards. God wants to move us forward as we embrace change. So how do we face our fears and move forward? Number one, this is very brass tacks, but listen, how do you begin to embrace change in your life? Number one, listen to the voice of God. Again, looking at Samuel, what did Samuel do? He heard God's voice. And it motivated him to action. If you want to embrace change in God's world, my friends, listen. you got to listen to the voice of God. So how do you do that? Well, we call this prayer. Prayer is the first and best reflex of your life and of the church. Here's the reality. Prayer is not something you do. Prayer is a conversation with God where we begin to hear what he has to say. His plans, his desires, his purpose for your life and for mine. Here's another thing. How do you listen to the voice of God? Not only in prayer, but worshiping God alone. How do we do that? Well, we listen to God's voice in his word and in the corporate worship of the church. So you want to know what it's like to hear the voice of God? Worship the Lord. Read the word of God. Talk to God. It's small group Bible study and corporate worship here. Worship is what God instructed Samuel to do. Think about this. What did he say? Go sacrifice in Bethlehem. Worship is powerful. Today you might be facing fears. It could be about the church. It could be about your life. It could be about your health. It could be about a family member. It could be about your job. It could be about your home country. It could be about a number of things. But you know what? I believe that some in this congregation are facing challenges and changes that leave you almost petrified. You're normal. You're not crazy. But you know, I I believe that God wants to break into that life situation and help you embrace change. We must let go the old ways often so we can experience God's new thing. So we've got to embrace the fact of change. But here's a second reflection, quickly. Embrace God's plan. 
One verse from this passage stands out that trains our eyes to see God's plan in the midst of change. Look at verse 7. Verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Don't look at his outward appearance or his stature or his height, because I've rejected him. Man does not see what the Lord sees, for man sees what's visible, but the Lord sees the heart. This verse is significant because it alerts us how God moves in his world. You know, God in the world uses the least likely, the most insignificant, the most backwater, the most hick, the most country to do amazing things in God's world. Don't look at his stature. What, what God said to Samuel and Samuel's son, oh, surely this is the one. And God says, don't look at his stature. You know, this is something that we should recognize about Saul, too. Saul was tall, dark, and handsome. He looked the part of kings. But he wasn't the king after God's own heart. What we think about are the most significant, the most uh, uh, eye-catching, the most worthy, are actually often not the most worthy or the most significant in God's plan. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, do you know the people of Israel were the most backwater, insignificant, powerless, complaining people that you could ever imagine? In fact, when they're going into the promised land, Moses says to God's people, hey, just so we're all on the same page, it's not because of your might or your power that God is using you. You're weak and insignificant. Compared to Egypt and Babylon, they were nothing. But at the end of the day, God takes insignificant, weak, paltry things and uses them for his glory. Why? So we know who gets the credit. You might say, Heath, you don't know my story. You don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. God would never use me. I don't look the part. I'm not perfect. Well, guess what? You're qualified. Guess what? If you recognize you're weak and insignificant, guess what? You're qualified. In fact, going back to that passage in, in uh, Deuteronomy 7 and then Deuteronomy 9, God says to the people, it's not because of your righteousness that I'm using you. You're actually a stiff-necked nation. You're rebellious. You're sinful. But even I can use a rebellious, sinful nation. Why? So we know who gets the credit. And when we look at David, David in this passage is weak and insignificant. He wasn't invited to the party. He wasn't even invited. His own dad said, not worthy. But our eyes need to be trained to see what God sees rather than what we want. And in the end of the day, here's the reality. What God's plan was is to take the weak and insignificant, the little, the neglected, and use it for his glory. Whether we're talking about Abram or Israel or David, God use, uses the weak and insignificant for his purposes so that God gets the glory. So here's what I want to say to you. You think, oh, I could never. God could never. Here's what I want to say to you. You're qualified. God can use you in his plan. And here's the last reflection that I want to draw to our uh, attention from this passage. Number three, embrace the king. If you want to embrace change in life, you've got to embrace the king. In the Old Testament, the ultimate king is always God himself. In fact, when David in 2 Samuel 7 is anointed and commissioned, here's the reality. 
uh, as king and gets the, the covenant. In that passage, he's never called king. He's just called prince. Why? Because there's only one king in Israel, and it's not really David. David's just a prince. Who's the true king? God himself. See, the reality is David knew what it was to worship the true king. So when God's people looked to the king of Israel, now David, here's the reality. They were to look through the human king to see the holy king of Israel, God himself. So in the Old Testament, the king was given the scroll of the law. Why? So that God's people, even the king, would realize I'm subject to a higher authority. It's not my world. It's God's world. I'm only living in it. And that's a radically different view of kingship than in the ancient world. This reminds you and me, if we're going to embrace changes in life, we need to embrace God the king first and foremost. And we see this in chapter 13. We see it in chapter 15 as well. David, this little insignificant dude, the reason that God raises him up is because God is raising up a king after his own heart. Let me ask you a basic question. If David is the king that points everything that he is back to the Lord, why? Because David knows this is God is the true king. But let's apply that to our lives. There are a lot of things that we can put on the throne of our existence. Family, job, success, relationships. I mean, if you uh, were to wave at me your uh, device and I were to talk to you about Snapchat or TikTok or whatever, scrolling through the ad infinitum uh, uh, images of things that take precedence in our lives, we do a lot of comparing, don't we? And we say, oh, that's more important than I am. That's more important than I am. Or we say, this job is what makes me valuable as a person. There are a lot of things that we put on the throne of our lives. But here in this passage, we're reminded that there is only one king. And if you and I are going to embrace change, we've got to hold to the anchor, to the king. His name is Jesus. If you want to find fulfillment in life, no matter where God takes you in our world, here's what you need to do. All of us need to do. Embrace King Jesus. I, I promise you, he won't let you down. He, he won't leave you to the side. He won't abandon you. No matter if your profession is business, art, nursing, health care, Rehab, it doesn't matter what your business is or where God takes you. We have a king who's described as the anchor of our souls who will carry us more than that. He'll hold us fast. See, what we need to understand is in our changing world, there is one who never changes, and that's God himself. There's only one who can take us even through the biggest change of life, the transition from life to death. Jesus, who defeated death and brings us life. So my friends, let me ask you a question today. Are you embracing King Jesus? Do you love him? Do you serve him? 
maybe you come into this room and you say, yeah, I, I know Jesus, but I'm not really following him. Maybe your position is a little bit like Saul. You're putting on a good show, but when it comes to the heart of the matter, you look good, but at the end of the day, it's not real. Can I just encourage you? Turn to Christ. He wants to meet you where you are. He wants to uh, love you. He wants to give you a family. He wants to give you a home. And when he shed his blood on the cross and he rose victoriously from the grave, he proved something. Number one, death is not the final word to our lives. But number two, just muddling through existence is not what God has for you and for me. He wants to meet us and walk with us through the changing days that we all face. So my friend, if you don't know Christ, today you can. And if you want to embrace change in God's kingdom, you got to embrace the fact of change. Okay, you got to embrace the, can, uh, the plan of God. You're qualified. And then finally, just embrace that king. I'm going to ask you to stand. I want to pray over you. I ask God would uh, speak in your life. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would uh, speak to us. And whatever you say, help us to change and say yes.